So I think this is going to be the last week of this sermon series that we're in called Reaching the Remnant. We've been looking at the life of Daniel because Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and, and I'm sure other boys other than those four were a remnant of faithful followers when Israel was in captivity to Babylon. So we've been studying their life. What does it look like to live in a crazy messed up, wicked world. That is where we live, isn't it, saints? And so this morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. So if you want to turn there, Daniel chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me remind you that in Daniel chapter 1, we we read that Daniel determined in his heart that he wouldn't defile himself. There were certain things that were put before him, certain Uh, delicacies, certain opportunities that he knew that he'd be crossing the line in his devotion to God if he were to indulge in those things. I mean, he could have compromised. He could have made concession here and there. He could have just kept his faith over there, not bring it up or bring it in over here. But that's not what he did. Daniel allowed his faith to infiltrate every facet of his life. In fact, that's my sermon in a sentence this morning. If you want to write that down, our faith must infiltrate every facet of our lives. Infiltrate is kind of an interesting word. It kind of has a military feel to it. And I think sometimes we need to be militant about being focused in our faith, keeping our faith in front of us, right? Sometimes we be like, hey, right? <laughs> Be in step with the Holy Spirit, like be militant about it. But the word infiltrate actually just means to enter. It means to permeate or pass through a substance or area. And I want you to listen to me. This is one of the greatest lessons that we can learn from Daniel. How and why to give my faith full access to every area of my life. It's one of the things we can learn from Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. There was no situation, there's no activity, no relationship, not even a train of thought where Daniel didn't allow his faith to pass through, to permeate into. Let me say it this way. Daniel didn't put filters on his faith. You guys know what a filter is, right? A filter is a device that keeps unwanted particles, particles from passing through. Think of all the ways that we filter out unwanted things. When I thought about this, the first thing I thought about was my daily morning coffee filter. You guys use coffee filters or do y'all just eat it straight from bean? I get my caffeine fixed straight from the bean. No, we make our coffee. We put our filter in there so that we keep the grounds. We don't want the grounds in our coffee. Think about your refrigerator. My refrigerator has these little ding, ding, dings, these little notifications when it's time to change the air filter and change the water filter. Though you can already tell when it needs to be changed. Why? Because it starts tasting nasty. You guys know what I'm talking about? So we have filters on our refrigerator. Think about your air conditioner. Our house, for some reason, is like... Dust Bunny Central. We have to change our filter all the time. You know what I mean? 
Think about your car. I think cars have like four types of filters, the cabin filter, the oil filter, the fuel filter, the air filter. And you maintain those from time to time. You do your, your checkups and you get those things maintained. Otherwise, your car is going to start running funny. So we're aware of filters. I mean, even think about masks. Aren't masks a filter? Yeah, maybe not a very good one, but they are filters. No, seriously, they make filters for your mask. Isn't that right? You can buy mask filters. So we are very, very acquainted with what a filter is. Now, let's be honest. There are times when our faith is the unwanted thing. We don't want God's standard in our romantic relationship. Or we don't want to be razzed by unbelievers at work, and so we filter our faith out of those relationships. Or we just keep our faith on the down low in general because that's just a better way to make and keep friends. It's just better for you not to know that I'm a Christian and I love God Almighty with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't need to know that. We laugh, and that sounds totally ridiculous, but that's what we do. We put filters on our faith. We've all done it, and we've all learned the very hard lessons that come from doing that, haven't we? Absolutely. My faith must infiltrate every facet of my life. The title of the sermon this weekend is Faith Without Filters. Faith without filters, a great place to start when talking about faith. We talked about faith a little bit last week. We're going to talk about it a little bit more this week. But Hebrews 11, we know that Hebrews 11 is, is sometimes called the faith chapter. And it starts out, it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is super important. Because you're not going to become a remnant. Remember, we're talking about becoming a remnant and reaching the remnant. Being a remnant now, we believe that God's coming back for a remnant. We believe he's coming back soon. But he could tarry a while, y'all. It could be another 20 years. So what are we doing to reach the remnant? We are not going to become a remnant or remain a remnant or even reach the remnant without faith. Isn't that true? I want to revisit that definition of remnant in case you may have forgotten, as we've said over the past, really, couple months. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. Okay, the idea is that it may be left over, right? Think about a seamstress. She's making this dress, and she's all done, and she's got this little portion of material left. What does she say? No, throw it out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make me a do-rag. Or I'm going to make me a scarf. Or I'm going to cover a cushion on a chair. Or whatever. Same thing with, a, with anybody ever built a house or recarpeted your house or something. You carpet it and at the end of it you have some big carpet remnants that you might put in the garage or you might put you know, somewhere to keep the dirt off the floor or whatever. The idea is that it may be left over, but it's not left behind. The bigger idea may even be that it may be a small portion, but it serves a big portion. Can I get an amen? Yeah. 
I wonder how many people in the church are actually serving the big purpose that God has for them. Like really, a lot of people are church going, but not so much going for God. And I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just stating the fact, the reality. I'm observing that faith has been dumbed down a lot of times to just believing in God. I believe in God. I think a sad reality is that there are a lot of people in the church that are just a few degrees away from being atheists. There's an author that Melissa and I love called, his name, he's called, they call him <laughs> Jerry Bridges. And he says that this is practical atheism. We say this, but practically we do that. So we're talking about God, proclaiming God, but our actions are saying we don't even believe in God. Faith in God isn't just believing that he's out there somewhere. Well, I know he's out there somewhere. That's not what faith is. Faith is confidently knowing that God is right here, like with us, right? Wherever we go. Psalm 46 verse 1 says that God is our refuge and he is our strength. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. One of my most terrifying memories as a dad, Melissa and I, and we just had the boys at the time, and they were young, and we were on vacation. And how many of you know, if you're on vacation with kids, you've got to stay in a hotel that has a pool. Parents are like, mm. I saw somebody having a flashback over there. Like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> you got to have a pool. You have, have to have something to entertain them. Anyway, we got in this hotel, and it's time to take the boys down to the pool. And so we go down there, and it's really just me and Cannon. Cannon, at the time, was, I want to say, right around four. He wasn't very, wasn't very old, and Aiden was old enough and already knew how to swim. He was jumping in the pool and all that. So me and Cannon are sitting there, and he's putting his little floaties around, and we had put them, you know, onto the side, and we'll put them on in a minute, and we got towels spreading out, and, and I go over here, and I put my, you know, my um, um, coconut oil sun tanning lotion because I was going to get me a tan that day, whatever. Anyway, I turn around, and Cannon is nowhere to be found. And I was like... Okay, he must be behind, because you never know where Cannon's going to be, you know what I'm saying? And so where is he, where is he, where is he? And Aiden's over there splashing and having a good time, yelling and acting a fool. And I'm like, where is Cannon? And so this pool had a couple of layers. There was this layer that was right in front of me. It was there, and then it kind of went down, and there's a whole other section. Does that make sense? And separating me, where I was standing at the moment, from that top section was a... Um, the hot tub and it was made of these stones. And so where I was, I couldn't see over it. You know, I could see a lot of the pool, but I couldn't see right there. And I'm looking, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I start panicking and I start walking closer to the edge of that hot tub. And I look, and just on the other side of that hot tub is cannon underwater like this <laughs> eyes wide open, just sitting there. And of course I freak out. Oh my and I literally jumped across the hot tub. And when I did, I remember I ripped my chest open on some of the rocks. But I got him, and I got him out of the water. He wasn't even phased. He was like, what's up? <laughs> and, of course, you parents know what my heart was doing, right? <laughs> I thought I was about to be tried for murder of a child. You know what I mean? 
it was crazy. But I'm telling you, he was just sitting there, just standing in the water. It was at least that much over his head. Just waiting. Just waiting on daddy. Don't you love that? Now, if you know Cannon, that's just kind of how he is. Cannon, he had faith. Daddy was somewhere. Daddy will be here in just a second. Daddy, daddy will save me. That's what happens when we give faith full access. We don't freak out when we find ourselves all alone under the water. Amen. We don't cave in when we encounter trials. We don't shrink back to some former sin every time that we are tempted by it. And get this, it goes on in verse 6, Hebrews 11, verse 6, and it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, so that is part of the equation, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There's got to be more to faith than just believing that he exists. There's something that happens in our faith that turns out rewards, that provokes God to want to reward us and bless us. I want to give you this quick faith equation. Just write this down, tattoo it somewhere on you. Okay? When my faith, when my faith, okay, I hope you're hearing me. When my faith produces faithfulness, because that's what faith does when we give it full access, when we don't put filters on it, what happens is, naturally, it produces more and more deeper and deeper levels of faithfulness in my life. So when my faith produces faithfulness, God is pleased. God is pleased. When my belief in his existence makes me mindful to make godly Choices, no matter what, to do the right thing, especially in questionable circumstances. You guys know what I'm talking about? God is pleased. It's just, it's just the equation. When my faith produces faithfulness, God is pleased. And what happens when God is pleased? He does great and mighty things in me and through me. Isn't that true? That's what it says. He is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. It goes on there in Hebrews 11. It says, it gives a brief list of men and women who weren't perfect by any means. And we know that. But they had great faith. And they, say, they saw God do amazing things in their lives. Down in verse 32, after listing a, a bunch of faithful men and women, in verse 32, it says, and, and what more shall I say? It's already said a lot. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, and he could have gone on and on and on and on, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle 
and routed foreign armies. I mean, I'll say it again. Unfiltered faith in God produces mighty acts of God. That's what this whole list is about. We call it the hall of faith. Unfiltered faith produces mighty acts of God. Did you notice that it said, who shut the mouths of lions? And it said, who quenched the fury of the flames? Daniel's name wasn't in the list, but it did recount the mighty act of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their names weren't in that list there in Hebrews 11. But what did it do? It retold in just a few words the story of how they endured, how they overcome, how God did a great and mighty thing in their life. And why? Because they didn't have filters on their faith. These boys are considered hall of faithers, even though everyone else around them in that crazy time of history for Israel was crumbling. So many people just falling back and compromising. They ate the king's food. They drank the king's drink. They were bowing down to the, the golden statues. They were, they were no longer praying because people told them, stop praying. But not these guys, not the ones we've been studying about, not Daniel. They gave their faith full access. They brought their faith into their situations. They didn't filter it out. They allowed it in. And they saw God move. Somebody needed to hear that. You've been asking God to move. You've been asking, I don't know what specifically, but you've been asking God to move in your life. There could be different reasons that God may not be moving. It could just be a timing thing. I mean, he's, his ways are higher than our ways, and he, he's got stuff going on that we don't know anything about, right? But it could be that you have some filter somewhere as it relates to your faith. Now, I've got to warn you, when you give your faith full access, when your faith is unfiltered because God's ways are wanted in your life. Like you want God's ways predominantly chosen in your life and you start feeling God move. You start seeing him move in your life. Here's what happens. You become a target. You become a target. Look at Daniel 6. That's where we're at. Daniel chapter 6. Chapter 5 ends with Daniel being promoted to the third highest ranking official in Babylon. Cool story. Go back and read it. Chapter 6 opens up like this. It seemed good to Darius. Darius was the king at this time. It was later. It was after Nebuchadnezzar, after Belshazzar. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might be accountable to them. And that the king might not suffer loss. Okay, so these guys, he was kind of spreading out the load and the, and the ruling. But he had three rulers that were going to be on, uh, over all these other rulers. 120 satraps. And then it says, then this Daniel, this Daniel guy, began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps. Because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. 
And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Okay, so Daniel is already one of the top three commissioners. Okay, we just read that. But he's about, because of his excellent spirit, extraordinary spirit, he's about to be given authority over the entire kingdom of Babylon. He was going to be the ruler of the rulers. Okay, now listen, in chapter one, Daniel, Daniel didn't determine in his heart that he was going to be appointed over the entire nation of Babylon, that he was going to be the ruler of rulers. He only determined in his heart that he didn't, he didn't want to defile himself. I'm not going to defile. That was his aim. That was his goal. He just wanted to remain faithful to God. If I can keep from eating from the king's table, if I can keep from drinking from the king's wine, I'll be good to go. This will please God. He wasn't thinking about being number one in Babylon. Could you even imagine? This is the furthest thing from his mind. And yet, and yet, faith does what faith does. True faith produces faithfulness. Faithfulness pleases God. When God is pleased, he does great things in our lives, right? True story. That's not to say that God wouldn't or couldn't or wouldn't or shouldn't do great things in our lives when our faith is low. All of us have been lacking in faith. We know that God can do things in spite of us, right? In spite of where we're at. Because even when we're faithless, he yet is still faithful. But how much sweeter is it when we have been faithful? I don't want God to always have to move in spite of me, right? Anybody ever been there? Like, God, I know you came through, but I didn't play much a part in that game. Right? That's not what we want. It's much sweeter when we have been faithful. But remember what I said. When you are faithful, God starts moving. It makes you a target. It goes on in verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4. And look what it says. Then the commissioners and satraps begin trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. And they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, man, we're not going to be able to find any grounds of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the laws of his God. So they start scheming. Now think about this. Daniel was about to be promoted number one over the entire kingdom of Babylon. Can you imagine the jealousy and the disdain that these commissioners would have had? The whole time, the whole time Daniel's up there in those ranks, but especially now that Daniel, an Israelite, would have been promoted over them. They would have been enraged. They would have been so frustrated, so angry. But I'm thinking about all this, and I'm thinking, who's, who's really mad? Like, who's really the one that's mad here? It's the spirit behind these men. It says that the commissioners began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel. But what do we know? We know that accusation is Satan's territory. Right? Accusation is the ground 
that the enemy walks on. It says in Revelation 12, verse 10, the accuser of our brethren, the accuser of the saints, that includes us, there is someone who accuses you, has been thrown down. He who accuses them, the saints, before our God day and night. He is the accuser. Who's really threatened here? The commissioners with their political agenda? No. Satan is ticked. He is threatened because his spiritual agenda is about to be thwarted by what God's doing in Daniel's life. The commissioners, they're just pawns. They're just pawns in the plan of the accuser. And I want you to listen to me this morning. You might be here and you might be frustrated with politicians pushing so hard their agenda on certain matters. Or maybe this particular month, you're frustrated, maybe even disgusted with the LGBTQ agenda and Pride Month. There's literally some sort of little rally going on downtown right now. Maybe you're just, you know, at your wits end with the whole thing or whatever. There's plenty of agendas to choose from these days, right? Just pick one, pick an agenda, any agenda. All kinds of stuff for us to focus on. But I want you to hear me. We really can't be frustrated with these people and lash out and verbally attack or cyberly attack. We do need to be a voice, but we have to be careful how we do that. Because scripture tells us that we, we have to speak the truth, but we have to speak it in love. That's how Daniel did it. That's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did it. These guys had it way worse than we do. If they can do it with love and with peace and with joy, then surely we can do it. We have nothing on them. They were literally in Babylon. Amen? I want you to remember that these people who may be on your frustration list or whatever, even the worst of the worst of the worst, they're just pawns. There's a spirit behind that man or that woman or that agenda. There's a spirit driving that. But the Holy Spirit that is in us is greater than the Antichrist spirit that is in the world. Amen. That's what scripture tells. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Attacking people will accomplish nothing. Attacking people will do nothing to change things. But prayer will. That's what scripture says, James 5. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man has the power to prevail. We got to be reminded of that. We also need to be reminded that Jesus never spoke harshly to sinners. I want you to think about this. Jesus never spoke harshly to sinners. He told them the truth, but he did it with love. He was moved by compassion, motivated by mercy. Sinners, I'm going to say this too. Sinners, this is going to shock somebody. 
sinners did not disgust Jesus. Sinners are the ones he came to save. Isn't that right? We remember the, the gospel. <laughs> Christians, believers, have gotten in a bad habit of filtering faith out of these situations and these conversations. And that just does not please God. Are you with me? The only people that Jesus ever spoke harshly to were the religious people. The people who would walk by and even walk over those who they were disgusted with. That's who Jesus spoke harshly to. We need to remember that. Jesus basically said, you are nothing but a white-washed tomb if you do not know how to love the people around you. Super important for us to remember that. These commissioners, they were just pawns in Satan's agenda. And they devised a plan that would get Daniel killed for praying to God. And it worked, right? And what is Daniel's death sentence? Anybody remember? Yeah, the lion's den. Being tossed into a den of lions where he would be devoured. Makes total sense. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, right? And Daniel is about to be devoured. And this would be a perfect time to put a filter on your faith, right? Uh, uh, never mind, <laughs> right? Hands behind my back, I ain't praying. This would be a great time to apply a faith filter, but he doesn't. In his mind and in his heart, Daniel militantly forces his faith into his own heart and mind. He allows his faith to infiltrate this trial. He's like, God is my refuge and my strength. He is my ever-present help in times of trouble. And I'm sure many other verses that he was quoting in his head and his heart, maybe even out loud. There's a scene in Zechariah 3 that we won't look at the whole thing, but it starts out, Zechariah has a vision, this little vision, and he's talking about it here. It says, then God showed me Joshua. So his vision is of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you get the scene. Here's Joshua, the high priest. Helpful hint. Joshua is a picture of the believer standing before the Lord. Okay? We are a kingdom and priest, royal priesthood, right? So Joshua is us. So here's Joshua standing before the Lord, Satan at his right hand accusing him. And we know this scene. We see this scene in Job. We just read it in Revelation 12, accuser of the brethren who accuses us before God day and night. So this is accurate. This is theologically correct. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. Here's what I love. The Lord said to Satan, shut up. <laughs> or something like that. No, it says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
And the rest of that scene is powerful. I encourage you to go back and read it out of Zechariah 3. But what did we just learn? God was there to rebuke Satan for Joshua. It's a powerful scene, saints. God was there, ever-present help in time of trouble. Several weeks ago, we talked about how Scripture may, you know, like here in 1 Peter 5, may describe the devil as a roaring lion ready to devour, ready to destroy. But Scripture also describes Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? Ready to deliver, ready to bring, ready to offer life. And we know the story here in Daniel. Daniel didn't encounter the devourer in that pit. He encountered the deliverer. The deliverer, in fact, rebuked the devourer. God silenced every accuser that was there that day by saving him, by rescuing him. Uh, rescuing him. In fact, look what it says when Daniel, it says, Daniel said to Darius, when Darius found him alive, because Darius was worried. Darius was trying to figure out a way. He liked Daniel. Read the story. He was trying to figure out a way to save him, but he had to be true to his word. Daniel prayed, I got to kill him, right? But the morning he woke up and he runs to the pit. Daniel, you alive, man? Daniel's like, dude, you won't believe this. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not heard, uh, harmed me. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. For God to shut the mouth of the lions in my life. But you need to take notes here. You got to see why Daniel was delivered instead of being devoured. Verse 22. My God sent his angel, shut the mouths of the lion, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as, or because, I was found innocent before him. God saved me. He shut the mouths of the lion because I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. This is huge. It says that these commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption as much as he was faithful. The NLT says he was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. I love the way the message version says this. Listen to what it says. These leaders, they got together to find some old scandal or skeleton in Daniel's life that they could use against him. But they couldn't dig anything up. He was totally exemplary and trustworthy. They could find no evidence of negligence or misconduct. So finally, they gave up and said, <laughs> we're never going to be able to find anything against this Daniel Unless we could cook something up, something religious. They had to cook something up. Why? Because Daniel's faith infiltrated every facet of his life. They tried to come against him 
in his professional life, but we saw what it said. They couldn't find anything. He was exemplary. No fraud, no corruption. They tried to find stuff in his personal life. Couldn't find anything. They could find nothing to accuse him. So what did they do? They figured out a way how to use his spiritual life against him. Let's get the king to pass a 30-day no-pray decree. For 30 days, nobody can pray to their God. So interesting. By the way, that sounds a lot like what the enemy is doing in this season of history. Doesn't it? Let's get the king to pass a decree that no one can pray. Or maybe it's not that yet. No one can gather. No one can have services. No one can. It's so similar, guys. Listen, taking our convictions and turning them into cultural contradictions. It's happening like that. It's my conviction and many of yours. It's my conviction that marriage is meant for one man and one woman. Well, you're just narrow-minded and unloving and unaccepting. It's my conviction that a boy cannot become a girl. And vice versa. <gasps> what a hateful thing to say. Y'all with me? It's my conviction that a boy be called a him and a girl be called a her. Unbelievable! You should be arrested. Well, that may happen one of these days. It's already happening. It happened in Canada. Isn't that right? The world is losing its mind. Daniel chapter 10, uh, 6 verse 10 says, when Daniel, look at what he says, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, in other words, when the decree went forth, it was made for reals. It was solid. Daniel knew the document was signed. Daniel got the memo. Okay, Daniel wasn't accidentally breaking the rules. He knew that his conviction had just been made a cultural contradiction. But he didn't care. Right? And he certainly didn't put a filter on his faith. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, meaning people can see what he was doing. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Didn't stop anything. He stuck with his conviction rather than putting a filter on his faith and siding with the cultural contradiction. They couldn't get anything on Daniel. They couldn't get Daniel for something he did wrong. There wasn't anything wrong that he did. So they got him for something that they knew 
he would do right. And I'm telling you, that tactic is at play again. That's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> I do want you to listen to me. This, this is what Satan's doing right now. Seriously. He is creating a culture war. He's conditioning the world to see Christian convictions as cultural contradictions. So here's what we have to ask ourselves. This is how we prepare for this season that I believe is going to get worse. That type of stuff will make it to Tyler, Texas. When? I don't know. But it will. It will. You may find your pastor in prison one of these days. Okay? Just be sure to bring me some banana bread with knives stuck in there. I'll get out. <laughs> I just need your help. I can't say to the eye, I don't need you, or uh, ear, I don't need you. We are the body. We work together as one. <laughs> Seriously, though. Here's what we have to ask ourselves. Because this day is coming. How deep does my faith go? How deep does my faith really go? Does my faith infiltrate, even in a military type way, militantly, infiltrate every area of my life? Does it go down to the deepest places? Or have I put a filter on my faith? And what does that mean? Let me give you a, a, just a brief definition in case you haven't caught this. What I'm saying is, is there any stopping point to my trust in God? Is there any area I'm not going to trust God? I'm not going to allow him in. I'm not going to allow him to affect me or change me or convict me. I'm going to keep it out of this relationship because I kind of just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to keep it out of my workplace because I want to be able to get that raise, but they don't even like Christians. We've all been there probably. I have. I've dealt with bosses that did not like me, treated me poorly because I was a believer. Are there stopping points in our faith? Is there, is there a place where we're putting a filter in faith? Maybe it's getting through a little because a filter lets some stuff in, but we don't need a little in. We need that area infiltrated with our faith. There are areas in my life that I, if I don't allow my faith to come in in almost a militant way, my flesh will win the war. So I say, Holy Spirit, come. I want to plant seeds according to the Spirit so that I can reap according to the Spirit. There are areas in our lives where we're still planting, sowing according to the flesh. We've put filters there. We're not letting the Spirit in. And then we wonder, why am I still reaping according to the flesh? Get rid of the faith filters. Get rid of them. And let me tell you, the world is going to get crazier and crazier because that's just what Scripture says. It's going to be. There's going to be a great falling away. Paul talks about it. Second Thessalonians. There's going to be a bunch of Christians who fall away. 
who compromise, who make concession in many, many areas of their lives. They jump into the stream that's heading towards hell. But that's not going to be us. That's not going to be us. Why? Because we are being reminded every time we gather and then every time you open the book yourself of who we are. Amen? I've been hearing amazing testimonies of people who are in their own way, in their own situations and scenario, standing like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not making a ruckus, not making a fuss, but saying, no, I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to bow there. Speaking the truth in love and listen. Their situation is changing. God is moving. They're not putting filters on their faith. They're being faithful. God is pleased with that. And he's doing great and mighty things in those people and through those people. And that's what we want, isn't it, church? Let's stand. I've said a lot. And I have no idea how the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you personally, but I know that he is. It's important for you to take the things that you've heard here and other places that you're hearing it and submit it to the Lord and say, Lord, what needs to change? What needs to come? What needs to go? Specifically, this morning, I'm asking you to ask God, where do I have filters on my faith? And then ask him to help you remove them. Amen. Amen, Amen saints.